Alright, so welcome back to the Scorpo podcast, you guys. This is uh, episode 14. Um, as we promised you, we've, we've decided to get um, Professor Mike Cole on for this episode. Um, now he's got about 40 years under his belt studying racism and pedagogy, public pedagogy. Um, and we basically just wanted to get him on, considering the past week's events, to just give us a more in-depth and educative insight um, into racism in the UK, um, and then hopefully provide you with some much-needed political guidance. Um, so yeah, I guess, please could you introduce yourself, Mr. Mike Cole? Yeah, my name is Mike Cole, as you say. I'm a professor at the University of East London, uh, professor in education, uh, mm -hmm. and uh, I've been there for about five years. Uh, I started off, uh, my teaching career, I started off teaching in schools, then I worked in universities for the rest of the time, and I've been a professor for about the last 10, 12 years. Amazing. Um, so yeah, I guess the first thing we'd like to get into is just to go through the news cycle breakdown. Uh, me and Nathan uh, were at the march yesterday. Um, and I guess I, I mean, the first initial thoughts I had after the march um, was whether, whether uh, I guess, the public coming out en masse as such is, is, is beneficial or had actually done anything um, politically. I mean, how, how effective do you think marches are? <clears throat> I, think, I think it's been absolutely fantastic. I've never seen anything like it in my life. I've seen a lot of demonstrations, a lot of, against racism, against various other injustices associated with, with capitalism. What's been happening in the last couple of weeks has been the most amazing thing I've ever seen. I think particularly in the United States, where you've got uh, people from all different backgrounds, different ages, male, female, black, white, uh, LGBT communities, women, a complete mixture of people all united in combating racism and I'm also interested in the fact I think it's going to spread hopefully to wider injustices and I've noticed oh, yeah. increasingly I watch CNN quite regularly increasingly mm -hmm. on the news uh, people have become more and more focused on getting rid of Trump and Pence and I see in the latest opinion polls his popularity has gone right down so I think that if, if this ends, of course, it's not going to change anything drastically in the system. But if, if at least if this starts a movement to get rid of Trump, then I think, I, I mean, stopping getting in power again, getting, getting re-elected again, then I think that will be a fantastic step forward. Yeah, 100%. We've recently seen, um, like that resource that you sent us on, um, on Mattis, who came out with a statement based on Trump's use of um, the military. Sorry, what did you say? Um, do you know... The 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 secretary within uh, the within twenty seventeen to twenty nineteen Jim Mattis, his statement on Trump and his use of the military against the protest. Oh yeah, protests. yeah, yeah, yeah. So it goes to show that on a constitutional level, um, the how people have showed their dislike towards Trump, people that have previously actually supported him as well. Yeah, I think that this is another sort of major turning point. Even people within his own party, people on the right in America, even they are saying he's going too far. <clears throat> I wrote a book, um, came out last year, but it's coming out in paperback this year on Trump. Uh, it's referred to in, in, the, in the notes you're going to show people, the book on Trump and the alt-right. And in there, uh, there's a whole section devoted to whether fun, uh, Trump can be decide, described as a fascist or not. Now, I think at the time I wrote this, I, I said he was fascistic rather than, than, than fascist. But I think what's been attempted, what he's trying to do now, which is kind of almost, some people have described it as an attempted coup. And my view is that if he if he doesn't get in in the presidential election in November, then anything could happen. I don't think he's going to take it lightly. So I think we live in very dangerous times. Also, in the light of what's happening, 
that I referred to earlier. I think we live in very hopeful, very exciting times as well. I also wanted to just quickly mention um, that I read that you were from Bristol. This is correct, right? Yes. <laughs> so what was your opinion of um, the the statue being brought down uh, Yeah, in I Bristol? mean, it's, so there's a large black population in Bristol, uh, mainly centred around the yeah. St Paul's area of Bristol. And, of course, Bristol yeah. was very prominent in the slave trade. And to have a, yeah. a, a slave trader in the centre of Bristol, I think, is disgusting. And I, as I read somewhere today, I think in Labour List, which is a, a list put out by the Labour Party, uh, she yeah. said something like, well, you know, all reasonable people, the response of all reasonable people will be, why the hell didn't that happen before? Yeah, OK. Yeah, because I did hear that there was a lot of um, petitions and that they were kind of the government... The local council were dragging their feet and making an actual change. So it's quite good that this kind of occasion started that. Yeah, when when they had the colour bar in Bristol, uh, there was a big bus driver's strike and there, there's, uh, there's now talk of uh, replacing the statue of the racist slave slave trader with, with a, something to commemorate the, the, the bus strike, which effectively ended the, the colour bar in Bristol. OK, all right, cool. I mean, I, I guess your read, your listeners will will know about the color bar. They should do, yeah. Hopefully. So, obviously, within the current climate, where people are kind of taking a revolutionary type stance to what's going on, a lot of people don't actually understand what neo Marxism or Marxism actually is. There's a actual stigma attached to it. Yeah. Even to the sense that when I speak to family members or if I speak to friends about Marxism or texts that we've read they automatically have kind of like a stigma attached to it where they don't want to listen or it's kind of associated with the works of like Stalin and Lenin and people just associate that negative stigma to it. Would you be able to kind of give an explanation of neo-Marxism and why some people view it as a turn-off? Sure. I mean, Marxism refers to the works of Marx and Engels and their contemporaries. Neo-Marxism simply refers to more recent work. And I've been particularly influenced in my writing by, by Gramsci and Althusser. Uh, Gramsci representing humanist Marxism, Althusser structuralist Marxism. And I think they're both useful because Althusser teaches us how powerful the structures in capitalist society are, uh, whereas Gramsci teaches us how we must constantly fight against the ruling class hegemony and how anything is possible. He once said, uh, pessimism of the intellect, optimism of the, optimism of the will. And I think, as you were saying about Stalinism, I think uh, the ruling class and their apologists are constantly trying to equate Marxism with Stalinism and what happened in the Soviet Union. Now, the, it wasn't all bad that happened in the Soviet Union and Eastern Europe. Uh, I visited many countries in, in that block at the time, and there were good things about it. But in general, I think that uh, uh, Stalinism isn't at all, uh, this authoritarian so-called communism, isn't at all what Marx and Engels envisaged. And they were essentially Democrats. And I think the, what, what they would have wanted were, was democratic socialism. So I think what we need to stress now is that, is that uh, socialism does not have to be authoritarian. It can be democratic. It has to be democratic. And it also has to be now eco-socialist. Uh, given the threat of, uh, from climate change. Uh, my latest book is about that, which appears as uh, 2020B. 
So I think uh, any socialism we work towards now has got to be eco-socialist, it's got to be uh, informed by eco-feminism, and I write about that in the book, and of course by anti-racism. And in the kind of socialist society in, in which I think we should move towards, all identities have got to be protected and it's got to be equality for all, not just white working class men, as it was, say, when I was the age of most people uh, who are listening to this podcast. It was all about the working man. I believe in the working man. I think that's all gone now and it's got to be inclusive of everybody. In um, Cold 2018A, on pages 278 to 294... I've got a whole section entitled Common Objectives to Marxism and Socialism and a Marxist Response. So I've got detailed uh, analysis of the, the objections people say, oh, well, what about this, what about that? And I've done a response to it. So people may be interested in, in having a look at that. Yeah, listeners, definitely check that out. Yeah, check that yeah out. I think it's definitely important to kind of create that distinction because a lot of people kind of look at Stalinism and then equate that straight to Marxism. But people kind of... What I felt um, previously is that people kind of see um, like Friedman and capitalism as something that's quite um, like rejoiced in the world. That's something that can be successful, but they never associate that to like authoritarianism that, that we currently are seeing in a capitalistic country like America. I feel like it's quite contradictory. Absolutely. I mean, the whole world has become very much polarised. And I don't think yeah. I remember again when I was... Uh, the age of, of most people listening to this, we'd have long debates like, you know, do we want socialism or not? And do we want this? And what is, what's the good things about capitalism and the bad things about capitalism? I think what is revealed to everybody now is that capitalism doesn't work. And also with the yeah. rise of right-wing movements in the States and around the world, we really are coming to, to a, a question of either or. And this has been exacerbated, of course, by climate change. And unless we do something about climate change soon, then we're not going to have a world to live in. And I think only eco-socialism, as I say, informed by feminism yeah. and anti-racism, it's the only hope we've got, really. And lots of people now are writing about the way in which COVID-19 is related to, to the whole question of ecology. So I think it's time now to, to start again while there's still time to do something about it. Mm -hmm. Okay, fantastic. Um, so I guess, I mean, later on, we are going to talk about the issue of tackling uh, racism. But first of all, I guess, could we clear up for the listeners what it is exactly that you're talking about when you use the word race? And I know you use it in inverted commas in your work. Um, so I guess if you could explain... Uh, yeah, what your view is on that? Yeah, I put it in, in in inverted commas because I don't believe it's a va it's it's not a valid scientific concept. Uh, it's a social construct. That's why I put it in race. And I think the the cliched st uh, slogan "one race, the human race." I think that's true. Uh, and all the scientific evidence now shows that it's 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 not valid to 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 categorize people into distinct races. There's two good. Uh, writers Stephen Rose and Hilary Rose, who write very clearly in layperson's terms. Uh, uh, he's a, um, a geneticist, uh, but he, he, he's written some good stuff uh, on summarising the scientific arguments uh, in, in fairly easy terms. And it's very con there's wide consensus now amongst the scientific community that there's no such thing as a distinct race. There's more, we have more things in common than we have that different. Yeah, I mean, there's yeah, there's plenty of scientific studies out there that's, that um, I guess go to show that there's more genetic variation within races themselves than actually between them uh, um, and, and such as the like. Um, but I guess what that's, that's what I was trying to say. Yeah, you're absolutely mm, right. Yeah. 
And I guess what what I mean, what does it mean for race then to be socially constructed? Well, I think it means that we 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 stop talking about race. Uh, that, uh, you know, that's as I say, why I put it in inverted commas. Racism, on the other hand, is <laughs> is 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 of course totally real and happening. And yeah. uh, I talk about racialization following the work yeah. a long time ago of Robert Miles. But racialization mm -hmm. is a useful Marxist concept. Uh, racism just refers to the way in which people are falsely ascribed as belonging to distinct races. So racialization is real, uh, race isn't. Racism is real, racialization is real, race is a, is a social construct. And I think later you're going to ask me about racialized capitalism. Yeah, yeah, we will do. Yeah. Um, yeah, perfect, I guess. Yeah. Uh, Nathan? Yeah. So as an avowed neo-Marxist 21st century socialist, how intimately tied is the class struggle to that of racial equality? Yeah, as I said earlier, I continue to use Marxist theory to understand the relationship between ongoing developments in racism and migration. I think it's uh, important to stress that while anti-black racism is absolutely still a very dominant form of racism, demonstrated obviously in, in the tragic case of George Floyd, there are other forms of uh, colour-coded color racism. There's also non-colour-coded racism and what I call hybridist racism. Now, I think the, the, the uh, importance of, of Marxism uh, and neo-Marxism is that it allows us to understand historically and contemporaneously these different forms of racism. So if you take, for example what I call older colour-coded racism. And to understand this, we need to, to look at developments right back to the British Empire. Uh, we need to look at anti-black racism, but also anti-Asian racism and anti-Chinese racism. And in my book, Racism, A Critical Analysis, which came out in 2016, I look at this in great detail. So we've got old, we're just talking about the UK, don't forget. We've got older colour-coded racism. We've got older non-colour-coded racism, such as anti-Irish racism, anti-Semitism and anti-Gypsy Roma and traveller racism. Then we've got newer, what I call newer non-coded racism, such as xeno-racism. Uh, xeno-racism was, uh, uh, was um, first coined by Stephen Anden, uh, who passed away recently, but he was at the Institute of Race Relations, and he called it xeno-racism rather than xenophobia because he argued quite correctly, I think, that that what's happening to Eastern European migrant workers and, and why we're one of the main reasons we're leaving the European Union is because of this xenoracism. And it resembles very much the way uh, Polish migrant workers, Romanian uh, migrant workers, other Eastern European migrant workers, the way they, they have been treated and are being treated is more, is more similar to the racism in the immediate post-war period uh, directed at black and Asian communities. So yeah, we've got xeno-racism, yeah. and then we've got finally what I call newer hybridist racism, that's to say, <coughs> excuse me, racism where we don't know whether it's based on colour of skin or not, such as Islamophobia, which is more often uh, based on, on, on symbols, modes of dress and so on. There's anti-asylum seeker and anti-refugee racism, uh, where again, which may be based on colour or maybe not. Uh, and I think forced migrants is probably a more appropriate uh, term than, than, than uh, anti-refugee, than refugee. Uh, I've got a, an excerpt from a book on um, what we mean by refugees. I'd like to read if, if we've got time to do that, have we? Yeah, yeah. Cool. Okay, okay. So we're, this is in Cold 2018B. <clears throat> so here is, um, 
Here's a definition uh, from, uh, from the United Nations of what... And I think it's important to think about this because of the abuse that, that refugees and asylum seekers get, uh, both in the popular media and from certain politicians. <clears throat> right, a refugee is, quote, someone who, owing to a well-founded fear of being persecuted for reasons of race, religion, nationality, membership of a particular social group or political opinion, is outside the country, and it says his, sexist terminology, outside the country of his nationality and is unable to, or owing to such fear, is unwilling to avail himself of the protection of that country. So a refugee is someone who can't really say in the country in, in which they were living. An asylum seeker is someone who has applied for asylum and is waiting for a decision as to whether or not they are a refugee. In other words, in the United Kingdom, an asylum seeker is someone who has asked the government for refugee status and is waiting to hear the outcome of their application. <clears throat> Just two more quotes. There is no such thing, this is also from the United Nations, there is, this is important, there is no such thing as a bogus or a legal asylum seeker. Everyone has a right to seek asylum in another country. People who don't qualify for protection as refugees will not receive refugee status and may be deported. But just because someone doesn't receive refugee status doesn't mean they are a bogus asylum seeker. So this quashes all the kind of arguments you read in the Sun and the Daily Mirror. Uh, sorry, not the Daily Mirror. The Daily Mirror is uh, uh, quite a progressive paper. Uh, the, the Sun or the Daily Mail. And finally, in the words of Kofi Annan, let us remember that a bogus asylum seeker is not equivalent to a criminal and that an unsuccessful asylum application is not equivalent to a bogus one. So <coughs> there's nobody really, the, the whole notion of calling somebody illegal is, 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 is not accurate. Yeah, um, I agree with everything said there really, mm. to be fair. So I guess the next question we've got for you is, um, I mean, on, on social media over the past couple of weeks, um, a lot of the... Um, I guess the literature um, that's been spread around has been from uh, critical race theory. Um, and I just, I guess I'd like to, like for you to explain to our listeners what critical race theory is. Yeah, I've, what, I've, what I've written a lot about critical race theory. <clears throat> critical race theory, in essence, uh, views race as the main form of oppression in society rather than class. Although a number of critical race theories are uh, support intersectionality and look at all other forms of uh, <coughs> of oppression, uh, but my view is I think uh, critical race theories have, have offered us a lot, and I can understand particularly in America and particularly why what's happening now that people would argue this. So uh, I think uh, racism is important, but I think in order to fully understand. Uh, capitalist society. I think racialized capitalism is, is a more useful, useful term. Although I think critical race theories have uh, 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 helped us a lot in understanding certain aspects of, of racism. I mean, I think particularly of like microaggressions, where, yeah. where people of color daily uh, are subject to, to various forms of racism, which don't like threaten their lives or liberty, but are just sort of niggling over and over again. Uh, so I think critical, that's, that's just one idea. And I've written uh, two books about critical race theory. Uh, they're both on the, uh, on the, the reading list. Oh, there'll be an description for anyone listening. Yeah, okay. Dan is cold 2017. Uh, and um, there's another one that's not here. Uh, but there's an, um, if, if anybody wants right. to email me, I can always, uh, you can, I feel free to give out my email address. Okay, we'll add that, we'll add that in the description as well, also, if anyone, if anyone listening. Um, 
And I guess I kind of tied to that question. Um, you, you argue that though critical race theory has been a progressive force for social justice, um, that it has no concrete political program or uh, vision of the future. Um, and I mean, me, me and Nathan would argue that the sharing of the progressive rhetoric on social media that we've seen over the past two weeks has been um, similarly lacking in direction um, and a concrete political plan. So I guess, what do you, what do you, what do you have to say about that? Well, first of all, I, I mentioned earlier CNN. Uh, I was very, I've been yeah. watching CNN continuously for the last couple of weeks, and I understand why Trump hates it so much now. It is very anti-Trump and it's very anti-racist. It's not socialist in any way. It, it, you know, it's very pro-capitalist, but it supports a very kind of liberal, open form of capitalism, and it's overtly, it's overtly anti-racist. And uh, as you say, they've not only had uh, Martin Luther King, they've had uh, Martin Luther King Jr. the third who they've interviewed, and they've interviewed a lot of prominent black uh, American anti-racists. Um, <clears throat> so I think, I think that, that's worth uh, pointing out here. Uh, but I think we should, you, you mentioned Martin Luther King, uh, Martin Luther King, the original one, Martin Luther King Jr. I think it should be stressed that he embraced democratic socialism late in his life. And uh, can I read you, and I think a lot of uh, American anti-racists, uh, black anti-racists are also thinking more about, about socialism now. But if I can read you a quote from my book, which is down on the list as Cold 2011, a quote from uh, Martin Luther King. This is Martin Luther King Jr., the original one, it's on page 83. <clears throat> So uh, he said in, this was in uh, 1966, he said, you can't talk about solving the economic problem of the Negro without talking about billions of dollars. You can't talk about ending the slums without first saying profit must be taken out of slums. You cannot really, you, you re, you're really tampering and getting on dangerous ground because you're messing with folk then. You are messing with the captains of industry. Now, this means that we're treading on in difficult water because it really means that we are saying that something is wrong with capitalism. There must be a better distribution of wealth and maybe America must move towards a democratic socialism. So that's what he said towards the end of his life. So he was beginning to come, come to the opinion that, that the, the only real solution to the whole problem was start thinking about moving towards democratic socialism okay i guess i guess now now we're going to move on to uh the second half of our discussion i guess and focus on uh how we can tackle uh racism so yeah so the first question here is um tackling race within and outside your near marxist framework and what makes it a better framework to tackle racism from well i think that the important thing it 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 allows us to uh, to make connections between economic and political structures uh, and to race, race, racialized capitalism. Uh, and as I said earlier, <clears throat> and I talk about this in the book, New Developments in uh, Critical Race Theory and Education, uh, from page 140 onwards, uh, race, racialization, as I said, means categorizing people into distinct racism, sorry, into distinct races. As far as racialized capitalism is concerned, uh, in the, the book, I talk about U.S. imperialism, which has brought death and destruction to millions worldwide, overwhelmingly Muslims and people of color. So that's one aspect of racialized, uh, racialized capitalism. I also discuss racialized fractions of the working class in the U.K. and the U.S., whose poverty, to just take one example, who is greatest and who are generally treated less equally than white people. 
Uh, back to the death of George Floyd again and the ensuing and ongoing protests worldwide. I think this, uh, this, this all underlines the reality of racialized capitalism. And to just give you one example on the United States, on CNN the other day, uh, they, it was pointed out that the household income for a white family is $71,000 and for a black family, $41,000. Uh, also, as is well known, uh, people of colour in both the United States and the UK, and I'm sure elsewhere, fare far worse in, ter in terms of COVID-19. So I think this notion of racialized capitalism uh, makes capitalism uh, a central problem, but it also explains uh, that, that capitalism is racialized. It is, of course, also gendered. Uh, women fare worse under capitalism as well. So I think if we concentrate on capitalism and then look at the way in which it's racialized and gendered, it gives a more accurate picture, not only of what's happening, but points towards what can be done about it. Um, then leading on from that, um, a lot of our listeners and we as well would like to know how exactly do we differ from the US? Yeah. So from a historical and social political context, yeah. and it, is it important to have a distinction to bear in mind in terms of our plan of action? So like obviously a lot of people are saying that, oh, this is a US problem, not the UK. So um, maybe we should shed some light on that. I think that would be important. I think, I think it's very important. <clears throat> now, in the book Racism, A Critical Analysis, which is down on, on, on the list as Cold 2016, that is about uh, racism in the United Kingdom, racism in the United States and racism in Australia. And there's a fairly lengthy chapter on each. Uh, and uh, so I discuss the uh, historical origins of racism in all three countries and right up to its current manifestations. And in the conclusion to the book, <clears throat> I summarise the differences uh, between the three countries. But since you asked about the UK and uh, the US, I'll just give a couple of obvious ones. First of all, the, the United Kingdom has no identifiable indigenous population like the United States. <clears throat> and there's a lot um, in the book about, about Native Americans. And there's an interesting, um, they have a little um, comment, uh, regular comments on CNN, <clears throat> which I think sums up current situation uh, from the president of the Navajo people, where he, he just makes the point that uh, there are everybody all over the world is saying the way to to um, to, to, to combat COVID-19 is to constantly wash your hands. And he points out yeah. that on our reserves, we need water uh, for to, to drink and feed our livestock. We don't have excess water to wash our hands so i mean just a sort of small point like that which you which you know is happening in the 20 in in the 21st century so okay so you've got an indigenous population in 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 the united states and also of course in in australia and there've been large demonstration in support of aboriginal rights in australia in the last couple of weeks uh, secondly, <clears throat> the US, of course, is a product of European colonialism dating back to 1492. And the US, of course, has the legacy of slavery. And this, again, uh, to underline why I can fully understand why uh, people, many people in the United States see race, in inverted commas, as, as the main form of oppression. Uh, but I still think it's better to look at racialized capitalism. Uh, finally, an important point again, I think the United Kingdom is an island, whereas the United States borders, of course, on, on Canada and Mexico, hence uh, Trump's wall, uh, which he's still, which he's still uh, uh, ranting on about, apparently, even during these times of other things to think about. So I guess 
bearing this in mind, um, what does it what does it mean for racism to be systemic? Um, and is it important to sway the minds of those within the structures uh, as opposed to changing the structures themselves? Uh, systemic racism simply means it's built into the system, hence system systemic. People also talk about structural racism. I think these are, these terms are all pretty similar. Structural racism means racism is in the very structure of the society and institutional racism in all the institutions of society. So I think all these, these three words, systemic, structural, institutional, are all used to show how, how endemic racism is in, in so many societies. Um, Famously, the, the Stephen Lawrence Inquiry report of 1999, uh, which looked at the racist uh, murder of Stephen Lawrence, uh, this was the first time that the British state acknowledged the existence of widespread institutional racism in the police, the education system and other uh, institutions in U UK society. So I think that's an important milestone uh, and, and people, it's worth looking back at what happened to Stephen Lawrence and how that report uh, became uh, came to be written. Uh, as far as do we sway the minds of those within the structures or change the structures, <clears throat> my answer to that would be both. Uh, it's important to point out socialists always socialists are not just about revolutionary change. Socialists always support s reforms, but in the context of large, longer-term changes in structures. So, yes, we do need to change things here and now as we move towards more structural changes. And these demands are happening in the United States now. Uh, <clears throat> the National uh, Police Reform Bill is being introduced by the Democrats uh, soon uh, in the United States. And there are also, and I think this is very important to stress, there are also more radical demands uh, to defund or even abolish the police force in the United States. Um, <clears throat> I think Minnesota has, has passed something to that effect. Yeah, they did. Um, yeah, they passed the bill and uh, they're investing more into like community-led safety for the um, people within different communities. And this is a really radical uh, demand. And When I was a, a, a young socialist, uh, people used to talk about having a people's militia rather than the police. So this is almost, I think, moving back to that idea. And that was considered uh, really, really radical um, you know, many years ago. But, yeah, I suppose we have to think, about, of course you've got to have somebody to protect you if there's a murder or protect you from serious yeah. crime. But, you, you know, we, we need to rethink what police are actually doing for communities of colour in the United States. What are they there for? Are they really needed? So I think that's a, a, a radical development which needs to be carefully thought through but must be taken very seriously, I think. 100%. Especially um, police. I think police across the board in general, people need to take a look at what the actual role is. Um, I did some readings before on the police and exactly how they were introduced what they were introduced for and how they are similarly act in the similar ways as how they were um, brought about. So the protection of the state, not exactly the people. And obviously back then the state was actual people like slaves and stuff like that. So that's why when you see the police act in this kind of brutal way, I feel like they're still deeming as the people. They're, they're there to technically serve the people by definition, but what they're actually doing is kind of protecting the state of kind of the top 1% or like the, the ruling class, as um, socialists would say. Yes. So Leia, where have we failed in the ed education, um, educational system, especially with you being an educator, um, so drawing from first-hand experiences? 
I'm not going to. I'm not going to better help you in the way you think, but I, I will answer as I can. As I say, in recent years, uh, I've been uh, uh, more concerned with public pedagogy. That's to say, uh, pedagogy teaching and learning that occurs outside uh, uh, educational institutions, in the sense of universities, colleges, and schools. I've been more concerned with public pedagogy, like the public pedagogy of Donald Trump. Uh, in the book on Trump and the book on uh, Theresa May, which is also on the list, yeah. which will be provided, uh, her hostile environment and the way in which she's promoted the hostile environment. So I haven't been uh, working much on, on the education system as, as you mean it, uh, but uh, I've um, in, in the book, uh, sorry, in the, uh, what is on your list as Cole 2018C, on pages yeah. 121 to 122, which I'll just uh, refer to briefly, uh, <clears throat> I've made some suggestions. And I think, first of all, we all, in schools and in universities and colleges everywhere, we need to learn about the British Empire. What was the British Empire? Uh, what happened in the British Empire? What was taught in schools at the time of the British Empire? Uh, why there was mass migration in the post-World War II period, which is directly related to the British Empire. So we need to know about the historical context of racism, and we can only learn about that if we understand the British Empire and mass immigration in, in the World War II period. And I've made some other suggestions. This is on page uh, 22 uh, of the chapter I referred to just now. First of all, I think we must go into the arguments, and we can do this at all levels, of what we talked about earlier, that race being an invalid scientific concept, but there are distinct races. Uh, we've got to look, as I say, at the historical, multicultural nature of British society, dating back centuries. Uh, Britain's always been, a, a, since very ancient times, has always been, a, since the uh, times of the Romans, in fact, has always been a multicultural society. I think we need to look at <clears throat> different forms of racism. We need to look at racism, which is intentional, and racism, which is unintentional. It still hurts, whether it's intentional or not. We need to look at intentional racism, unintentional racism. We need to look at direct racism and indirect racism. We need to look at overt and covert racism. We need to look at dominant, which is direct and oppressive racism, and aversive racism. That's to say the kind of what's been, uh, the, the, uh, the, the uh, murder of, of black people is very much a dominative form of racism. Aversive is, refers to exclusion and cold, cold shouldering. Racism can become more apparent given certain stimuli. In addition, and I think this is an important point too, seemingly positive attributes will prob probably ultimately have racist implications. They are good at sport, may have the subtext of they are not really good at anything else. This has traditionally been, uh, been put forward uh, by certain people. Black people are good at sport, you know, and it seems positive. The subtext is, but they're not much good at anything else. So I think anything that seems positive very often is ultimately racist, like the statement that begins, I'm not racist, but. Okay, so we need to look at the very uh, different, different forms of racism. And I think we need to look at uh, uh, the different, for in the UK contacts, all the forms of racism I went through earlier in, in this interview. So we need to make people aware of all the different forms of racism. It, 
black, anti-black racism, yes, is fundamentally important, but so are other forms of racism, and some are more important at different historical times. So we need to know about the different forms of racism. The changing nature of nomenclature, I think, is important as well. What do we call people? Uh, when I was uh, the age of most people living to this, uh, listening to this podcast, we used to talk about coloured people. That was considered acceptable in those days. That's no longer considered... Uh, acceptable. We now talk more about people of colour, but but nomenclature changes all the time, and I think we have to put forward the the, the important message that it's it, you know there's no harm in asking what is appropriate, what are the current appropriate terms. The people uh, to, de to 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 de decide what they how they're referred to are the people who are on the receiving end. So I think it's up to people to define to say how they want to be referred to, and this changes over time. Uh, <clears throat> I think we need to discuss what words are, are racist and should not be used. That's, that's tied to the previous point. I think we have to educate people about the role of the media and of certain yeah. politicians and in, in, in inflaming and exacerbating racism. And finally, and this is probably the most important thing, uh, is, is we need to, to, to discuss how pupils and students can combat racism. Right, what are we going to do about it? Uh, to, to include different anti-racist practices. So those are my, my thoughts as I put in, in the book, uh, but I've not been involved directly in, in schools or uh, education institutions in actually talking about specific strategies. <clears throat> I have a colleague, I won't mention her name in the interview, but I have a colleague who I work with who, uh, if any listeners want to know more about the kind of practical things you can do in universities, in schools, I'm happy to pass any messages on to her. And I'm, I'm sure she'll, she'll, she'll respond. Yeah, um, I think that's quite important, especially the, the term public pedagogy, because maybe that is, maybe that's where we're seeing the failures within the classroom, because people aren't necessarily being taught about colonialism and um, racism within the schools. So then when you have people like Theresa May, Tommy Robinson, um, a lot of alt-right people within the newspapers, The Sun, etc., speaking about things like Britain, make Britain great again, trying to speak on that. People don't have that education to understand the nuances behind this. So this is where they're, this is their learning pretty much from the media, which we all know is pretty, um, the main media within the UK anyways, um, where the issues arise are pretty right wing as well. So this is where people are learning. Um, yeah, and then I feel like this also has a link with um, sometimes you speaking on interpolation, um, especially within your Theresa May book, um, where kind of, I don't know, I feel like this can be from kind of a, a lack of um, education. If you have someone within the media that kind of speaks on the whole notion of make Britain great again and how capitalism is a thing that's going to restore the faith within people within the UK, especially during um, post-Brexit period and during Brexit period, you're going to get people within different classes associating this kind of ideal of um, what they, what kind of, what Theresa May has associated themselves to, kind of, if that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, immigration is a, you know, I think 
uh, immigration is almost invariably linked to racism. You know, and you get people yeah. interpolating people using common sense notions like, oh, everybody thinks uh, we have to we have to curb immigration. You know, well, everybody doesn't. Yeah. Theresa May book, I make the case for you know open borders, <clears throat> which I think is inevitable anyway. But yes, so it's very easy to slip into the. Well, we all know this, don't we? We we we're we're, yeah. we're an island. We're overcrowded. We can't carry on letting letting in people. But if you actually look at the arguments and the implications it's not always as, as straightforward as that i guess our next question was that uh we see i guess a lot of apathy when it comes to engaging uh in political matters particularly for our demographic or people are just not aware of what it is that they can do uh uh to, i guess to, i mean specifically to combat racism politically uh, so how do we get people engaged in politics yeah i mean i just this is just off the top of my head um when you first asked me to do this interview but that some of the obvious things like we've seen all the demonstrations there's sit-ins there all the kind of street action which is incredibly important <clears throat> public pedagogy is also important but it doesn't uh, it doesn't uh, replace uh, action on the streets but with with social media people have got a great opportunity to influence people uh politically uh there's also of course obviously joining a political party uh <clears throat> i joined the labor party when jeremy Cor corbyn became leader uh, i'm thinking of uh, leaving it again now but uh, you know you can join yeah. a political party obviously a trade union um an anti-racist organisation or other organisations based on other identities, feminist organisations, LGBT organisations and so on. So you can do that uh, or get involved in your local community. <clears throat> I think it's really important to, um, like the, uh, the Labour Party in Brighton, uh, is, is very much involved in the community, in food banks and so on. I mean, it's a, it's a tragedy that we have to have food banks, but I think it's important for, for people on the left to be involved in it so that they can do the important uh, function of feeding people, but they can also relate it to why, why people are having to be fed, uh, why, why, there, why there has to be food banks. So I think uh, political activists' involvement in the community is very important. Uh, both to help the community, obviously, but also to engage people in conversations about what's going on and why it's going on and what can be done about it. Fantastic. It kind of goes into what people should be doing to get involved. So everyone listening, take that on. Hopefully they can take that on. So the next question is, what socio-political or institution, institutional systems ought we focus on changing first then? Well, yeah, I think it's at the moment it's a question uh, of immediacy uh, in the light of, of what's going on in the United States and elsewhere. Uh, and in, in the United States, protesters are, protesters are focusing on major structural change. And a lot of people are now talking about getting rid of, of Trump and Pence. Um, and uh, as I've said, clearly the police force needs reforming or defunding or possibly disbanding. So I think... Uh, at the moment, it, there is that urgency. But, uh, I mean, longer term, then we have to think about changing all the institutions in society. What would your opinion be on within necessarily having practices that can necessarily regulate the media? Because um, there's actually a really good documentary on um, Netflix called Trial by Media, and it kind of shows the... It really does show the how much gravity the media system on a whole has and how... Technically, they become they're, in such they can be even more powerful in changing people's opinions, especially than actual the systems in place that were built to act kind of like look after us. So, what would your opinion be on in terms of the media? How can we change the media 
Or will it always be dominated by a monopoly? Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, back to social media, I don't use social media very much, but it's a great force for giving alternative views to to society. And Netflix, even, you know, the obviously capitalist Netflix, there's some very progressive, some very progressive uh, movies on there now. And as I say, I I don't have shares in CNN, uh, but CNN is good. That was a joke, by the way. Uh, CNN is, uh, is is very good at giving an anti-racist, not an anti-capitalist uh, message, but an anti-racist yeah. message. So there's a lot going on out there and there's a lot of people questioning, um, questioning both kind of obvious kind of fascistic yeah. uh, developments, but also people beginning to question capitalism now and yeah. uh, more than ever before we have the means everybody has the, uh, the, the means to promote their message through, through podcasts and, 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 and so on and, yeah. and various social other social media activities yeah it's, it's 100% I, th- I think CNN is definitely something that people should look into but once again you get a lot yeah. of alt-right people that are scared of CNN because they kind of refer it to like the US version of The Guardian, they think it's kind of like a lefty's paradise. So a lot of people don't necessarily, people are just afraid to kind of look into it because they're they're more aware of their echo chambers. They want to listen. So like in America, they're more like entitled to listen to like ABC or something like that. And it's, I think what's interesting about it is, you know, I, I'm a great supporter of keeping the BBC going because, you know, it's kind of a, uh, it's a public institution. It's not private. Uh, the BBC and also Sky, which of course is private. If you look at, I watch because I work at home a lot of the time, and I often have the news on in the background, so I'm quite aware of what goes on in the news. And they always have <clears throat> on the BBC, usually and Sky always. They have these are the arguments for, and these are the arguments against. They have one person for something and one person against. Yeah. Now CNN uh, doesn't need to ha- doesn't need to do that. So a lot of the time, yeah. it's like here's one person talking about the the evils of racism and here's another you know and it's quite refreshing to have a bottom line and all the all the um somebody on the bbc i've forgotten her name she was um she was they forbade her to broadcast because she started off a statement which 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 people complained was bias i can't think of her name um Anyway, uh, the, the announcers on CNN can, can sort of say, that, you know, racism is wrong and, and, and this murder, this racist murder was wrong. So they can start with the bottom line, uh, with an opinion yeah. that something's wrong and they don't need the kind of the balance which is built into the BBC. Yeah, so obviously there's loads of uh, popular arguments currently on race um, where people online or in person, it's a topic that everyone's speaking about. So the very first one is all lives matter. So if you'd be able to destruct some of these um, popular arguments, that'd be fantastic for us. Well, first of all, black lives matter doesn't mean that other lives don't matter. Of course they do. Uh, Black lives matter is an important counter to the white supremacist UK criminal justice system and institutional racism in many societies that gives the impression that black lives don't matter. So the reason you have to keep saying black lives matter is because the the, the racist institutional system gives us that impression. But of course, uh, all lives matter. But we, we have to stress the fact that black lives matter because a lot of people say they don't or give the impression that they don't. Okay, and then the next one that we've got is um, I don't see race as a as a kind of like a... I can't be a racist because I don't see your race. Um, this can also kind of extend to kind of like the racialization of things. Um, what I've seen personally is kind of uh, what people have been doing. So yeah, I don't see race. 
Yeah, yeah, I, I don't see race either. I've seen race in, in inverted commas, but I'm totally yeah. conscious of individuals and groups who have been, are, or will be racialized in circumstances which are historical, contemporary, ongoing, or future. Uh, so, yes, we have to realize that different people are racialized at different times. So it's a question of, I think people who say, uh, I don't notice the colour of someone's skin or I don't notice, you know, I, everybody's the same as far as I'm concerned. They're missing the fundamental inequalities in, in society. So I think we have to recognise that different people are racialized at different times. Uh, and, and the importance, to go back to what I said earlier, the, the, the role of Marxist analysis in understanding this, <clears throat> that, the, that the fall of the so Soviet Union was at 1989, Who'd have said before the 10 years before that, for example, that, that Polish migrant workers or Romanian migrant workers or whatever were going to be treated the same way as black and Asian workers were in the post-war period? It would have been in, inconceivable. So, oh, well, in, in whatever it is, 30, 40 years' time, uh, white, uh, blonde-haired, blue-eyed Poles are going to be treated disgustingly. And so, well, no, impossible. So racism can change any time. Now we're out of the European Union. We don't know what's going to happen next, but uh, mark my words, different groups will become racialized at different times. So, yeah, no such thing as race, but it's important to realize that people become racialized, not only because of skin color, although that's very important, but also for other reasons that I've referred to earlier. Yeah. And then the last one being, um, there are some good police officers out there. Yeah, uh, my response to that, well, of course there are some good police officers out there. And I think we've witnessed this uh, on the demonstrations in the United States and globally. In the United States, this has included police officers joining the protest or speaking in favour of it. <clears throat> there was a guy on CNN this morning who was asked what he thought about um, people saying there's no such thing as systemic racism. He, he's a serving police officer, and he says something like, that's the most ridiculous thing I've heard. Of course there's systemic racism. So of course there are police who, who, who are, are good people. Uh, this doesn't alter, alter the fact, though, that the police forces are institutionally racist. Police, and as you said earlier, they represent, or one of you said earlier, they represent the state. So there are some, yes, yeah, so... so this bad apple theory has surfaced again recently. Uh, the notion that um, the police, are, of course, the police aren't racist. There are just some bad apples. I would say the opposite. Yeah. I would say there are just some good apples. Um, Boris Johnson, by the way, today said that uh, he he said that uh, Britain is not a racist society. Um, interesting, but we won't go into. Yeah, he's um, Boris Johnson has come up with a lot of things today. Um, he's. Um, He's definitely focusing on the, the, the thuggery, the notion of thuggery and stuff like that. It's weird to think that all they would have to do is come out and literally, all Boris could, it could be fake, it could be, it could be the most scripted thing in the world. All he has to do is literally come out and say Black Lives Matter, maybe walk for 10 minutes within a march and a lot of um, the issues that he's seeing may change, but uh, he, doesn't, he, just, he doesn't seem to want to comply with any, any of that. Boris Johnson, of course, is still eager to do a trade deal with Donald Trump. Uh, so I think yeah. he's very wary of saying anything that, that might offend Trump. So, yeah, just to end on, um, I guess the final question we have for you is, uh, what does a future society without race look like? And do you deem it plausible? Um, because obviously, when you have people engaging in political action, um, 
you'd like them to, I guess, envisage uh, a certain goal that they're striving towards. Um, so what would, yeah, what would that look like? Yeah, okay. Well, uh, yeah, I mean, the book on the list, which is Whole 2020B, Climate Change, the Fourth Industrial Revolution and Public Pedagogy is the Case for Eco-Socialism. So I give in quite a lot of detail <clears throat> my views on uh, um, an eco-socialist future. Um, I draw a lot on the work of Michael Lowy, L-O-W-Y, very good on eco-socialism. Oh, yeah. I read that, I read this, that morning, this morning. Actually. Okay. It's easier to envisage a society, in my view, without racism in, in a society that's post-capitalist. Since in a, in a, in a post-capitalist society, goods are produced for need and not profit. Therefore, there'd be less need for racism. Uh, one of the m main functions that racism performs in capitalist societies is divide and rule, right? If you can get black people against white people or one group, one group against another group, then it's easier for capitalists to rule. Uh, People of colour have always, uh, historically and contemporaneously, provided a source of cheap labour. Uh, and not just people of colour, Eastern European migrant workers more recently. So if we got people racialized and, and encouraged to think each other of the enemy rather than the capitalist system, then it's easier. It's, uh, racism has a function. But in a society where we're not producing for profit, we're producing for need, there'd be less need for the rule. There wouldn't be a ruling class to use racism, put it that way. Uh, during the COVID-19 crisis and during recent demonstrations, we've caught glimpses, I think, of such a world uh, with people helping each other in everyday situations. This exists anyway, but it's been more obvious and pronounced. And in the protests of recent weeks, we've seen vast numbers of protesters of different ethnicities, mainly young, marching together in a common cause. So I think it's there. And the way many people live their lives, promoting love and solidarity rather than hatred, I think the it's all there. Human beings, we, you know, Marx uh, talked about the... Um, uh, okay, you're going to have to edit this out. I've forgotten what he talked about now. Yeah, uh, no. He talked about species essence, yeah. Uh, we have a species essence, you know, uh, and we have a capacity for goodness. And so I, I think people are socialised into a competitive, racist, sexist, homophobic capitalist society. We don't need to be like that. So uh, I think the greatest obstacle to achieving socialism is, is believing that you can't do it and being being convinced by the ruling class who tell you it's impossible or it's bound to lead to Stalinism. It's not. And I think the more people say, yes, we can do it and practice the sort of things they want to do more and more in society at large, uh, we got a chance to do it. And I think time's running out, uh, particularly because of climate change and associated coronaviruses. So I think uh, we're moving to a situation, we better try it, otherwise we're not going to have a future. Yeah, 100%. In terms of um, the link between capitalism and the environment is definitely something that um, makes eco-socialism makes eco-socialism kind of like a way forward for people to kind of um, come together. Because I know um, Lowy said something um, to do with if like if a, if a hundred large corporations are accountable for nearly seventy eight percent of the world's global carbon footprint, then obviously that we have an issue at hand and it's it's pretty similar to the whole argument of the top one percent having the wealth of the ninety nine percent it's pretty it's a pretty similar argument i think um personally so um I definitely recommend uh, eco socialism for people to go look into that yeah that, i mean so yeah for any of our listeners out there that's been our um yeah hopefully hopefully we that this has given you a slight insight into what you can do 
because um, a lot of you have been asking. And yeah, I guess encourage you to to, to read further, further and do further. Um, and hopefully we've done our bit by providing um, Professor Mike Cole with the platform to to, to educate you guys. Um, so yeah, big, big thank you to yourself, Mike, uh, for coming on. Yeah, thank, thank you very you. much for having me and uh, my pleasure to, 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 to talk to you. And uh, as I say, I'm happy for people to email me uh, Professor Mike Cole, University of East London. E easy to. Uh, there's two Mike Michael Coles. There's Michael Cole, which is not me, and there's Professor. There's Mr. Michael Cole, who's not me, and Professor Mike Cole, who is me. So if you make sure you send any emails to the right one, that would yeah, be great. That email will be in the description for any of the listeners. That will be right there. Anything else to say, Nathan? No, I think it was a good standpoint from an objective level of um, kind of a deconstruction of the systems that we have in place and where their mm. failures have come and where we may um, have to move towards in the future. Mm. Stuff like neo-Marxism isn't as scary as people think yeah. and um, socialism on a whole isn't as scary as people think and it's something that's probably ingrained within themselves unconsciously. So like when they're sharing and they're talking about equality of the whole world and how um, large corporations like Nike are hypocrites talking about racial equality when they still have slave laborers and stuff like that. That's a quite um, a socialist mindset that they have there. So they have the aptitudes to discredit capitalistic corporations. So it's just kind of building all of that together, getting them the reading that they should be reading and um, hopefully we can move forward um, from this. Oh, everything. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, yeah. like you said, it's, it's it's definitely been implicit in all of the social media um, articles people have been sharing. Um, so yeah, I guess I guess now it's just to go out and make sure that action's kept up and it's not just for for the week, it's it's for um, it's forever looking forward to the future. So yeah, keep up, keep up the action. Mm. Yeah, we've been the Scorper Podcast. Um, yeah, so yeah, we'll see you guys next week. All right, take care. Had to get back, peace of mind. Remembering the times I couldn't describe what was inside. Getting wise, had to open my eyes, making strides, taking time. We're on my side, in the grind, in the grind. When every time, making strides, taking time. We're on my side.